Welcome to the Liberty Cafe, where oppression is on the menu. Hello everyone, this is Bill Peacock and welcome to episode 41 of the Liberty Cafe. Very glad to have you with us today and whether you've been with us just for this being your first episode or all the way back to episode one, which was just over a year ago at this point in time. Also very grateful to have with us today, uh, Jerry Boyer, and I'm going to get with, talk to him in just a minute, and we'll listen to him about the book that he's written. But before we do that, let me thank our sponsor for the Liberty Cafe, and that's Texas Scorecard. It's a group of godly men and women who are working hard to preserve and promote liberty in Texas, and we're grateful for their sponsorship. So let me talk a little bit about Jerry, and then we'll get him introduced and bring him into this. So Jerry Boyer is uh, wrote a book, The Makers Versus the Takers, What Jesus Really Said About Social Justice and Economics. And being someone who's been in the public policy arena for 30 plus years, uh, that immediately captured my attention. And so I rushed out and read it um, online. I've got my, uh, or on my phone here. And um, it just was blown away uh, by what he put in here. And, and we'll, we'll get to that in a little bit, because um, when we read the Bible, uh, there's, I mean, listen, we're, we're finite creatures. And the Bible is written by an infinite God. And we're going to spend all of eternity, even in our perfected state, trying to figure out all that God has told us and all about who he is. And we're just scratching the surface now. And so sometimes you run across a book that says, just goes, wow, I hadn't thought that way before, which is to me a little humbling and surprising because I've been working on this stuff, both theology and public policy for a long time. And just to see God's word opened up in this way was really fascinating to me. So, Jerry, uh, welcome to the show. It's good to have you here. Thank you, Bill. Great to be with you. Yeah. Thank you for your kind introduction. Well, you're, you're welcome. So uh, just a little bit, since this is about the Bible and public policy and, and all that kind of stuff, can you give me a little bit about, bit about your background? You were telling me a little while ago that you're in the Episcopal Church. Yeah. Uh, gee, I don't know where to start. I'm an economist. That's my day job. Um, I'm a follower of Jesus. That's my everyday and night job. Um, and I have some theological training. Um, and um, I've always wanted to understand better what Jesus was saying about economics. And I was not really satisfied with the conversation that had been going on so far. Um, we had the socialist Jesus theory, um, which I thought was implausible from the beginning. But there was also a conservative reaction that didn't sit right with me. And the conservative reaction was kind of about like sort of turning down the volume on Jesus. It was sort of saying, well, wait a minute. I, I know Jesus sounds like a socialist, but um, he's not really because he's not saying anything about economics at all. He's just saying spiritual things, um, or he's just, he's not saying anything about economic structures or political policy issues. He's just talking about your heart 
So the encounter with the rich young ruler is completely reduced down to the rich young ruler had a bad heart attitude about money. Or some Christians were saying, well, yes, Jesus is saying things about economics and, and all of that, but you know, the kingdom hasn't arrived yet. That's all for after the second coming. Bill Buckley, the conservative author, whenever, whenever someone would say to him, you know, quote to him something from the gospels about Jesus, um, which things that if you read them non-carefully made Jesus sound like a man of the left, he would say, well, I'll, you know, I'll pay attention to that when the kingdom of God comes. The problem is Jesus says the kingdom of God has come. Um, the kingdom of the kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in the in the midst of you. John, the forerunner, said the kingdom of God. You know, we're on the cusp of the kingdom of God, right? Um, we're ju we're just about to come into the kingdom of God, so it's there. So what the conservatives were doing was essentially conceding that Jesus basically talks like a socialist, and then trying to find some way to shut him up. You know, either by saying it's spiritual only, or it's heart only, or it's later on you know, um, when the kingdom comes. Um, and I didn't really think that was satisfactory. If he's the Lord, he gets to talk. Um, and we get to listen. Um, and then we get to, we should be thinking about what he's saying. So what I tried to do is bring my economics knowledge, not like forget what I knew as an economist when I read the gospels, but like continue, continue to be an economist and know what I know about economics and let, and read the gospels with that framework in mind and get deeper and deeper and deeper into the details of the gospels to basically say, Jesus, what were you doing? What were you saying? I'm, I didn't want to take my best ideas and hang them on Jesus. And I see a lot of people do that. And some of them are really good ideas. And a lot of the people doing it are my friends, but th that's not, to me, that wasn't enough. I wanted to let the voice of the Holy spirit come through the details of the text of scripture. And, and then Jesus will tell me, what he thinks instead of me telling Jesus what he's allowed to tell me. So throughout my life, I've always had a sort of a theological thing and a public policy thing going on. And I've also been a practicing economist. And with this book, I was able to sort of bring those together more than I probably have ever been able to do before. I don't want us to get too sidetracked into, into economics. That's really, you know, where I spend a lot of time myself and one of the reasons I really appreciate this book, but but wouldn't you say that you know when you, when you when trying to bring economics and, and the Bible together, wouldn't you say first principles that of economics really stem from the Bible in the first place? Yes, I would say that the first real economists, um, uh, and I don't mean the, you know the pagans like Xenophon who got almost nothing right. But the first real economists who had insight into the economy were not economists. They were theologians. Uh, they've been forgotten by history, um, but the Salamanca school of theologians, and then later on, some of the early American thinkers, um, these, the these people were theologians who had to come to grips with marketplace reality um, and usually started out from a standpoint of pagan thinking glommed onto Christianity. So they were, they believed in just price theory or, you know, sets various forms of central control because that's what Aristotle taught. Um, and so basically they were saying, okay, Jesus gets you to heaven. Aristotle tells you how the world works, right? When the fact is that Jesus is Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus gets you to heaven. He also tells you how the world works. Um, he's, he's, right. he, Jesus is, Jesus is not limited to expertise on the afterlife. 
Uh, he's, he, you know, he's, he's an ex, he's the leading world's expert on this life too. So what happens is theologians pick up these ideas, they're suppressed. They eventually come out through, uh, Calvinist thinkers, largely in Northern Europe, the Netherlands, uh, the, the reformation kind of opens up a space where some of these ideas can be pursued more It's actually Catholic thinkers who started in this direction, but basically right. the authorities said no more. We don't want to hear any more of this. The system of just prices, where we're the where only the church can lend at interest, we're we're happy with that system as it is. <laughs> uh, the Reformation opens up some space. We rediscover the biblical principles. It transforms the Netherlands. It's the first modern prosperous economy. Then comes over um, to United Kingdom, and then comes across the Atlantic to early America. But it does go back to the Bible. And if you read the Austrian economists, a lot of them are atheists. But you go back and read the original Austrian economists. And they're citing theologians in their footnotes. So this stuff comes from theologians, and it really it comes from Jesus, the rediscovery of Jesus. All right. Well, you, you talked about early about how the um, a, a lot of folks look at the Bible and pull this you know, kind of social justice, uh, social economics kind of you know what is the term uh, economics uh, in the in the in South America and Central America, the, uh, you know, the, the libertarian, the liberty, Liber economic, liberation theology, liber yeah, liberation theology and all those kinds of things out of the, uh, the Bible. Uh, yet one of the, the things you focus on early on in, in your book is this, this story of, uh, Jesus, right. Who is, um, a poor man born to a poor family and born under the oppression of this elitist ruler. It's, it sounds like you're starting off as a socialist yourself there, right? I mean, how do you get out of that into, away from that into the free market economics and, and the, the biblical truths that, that a lot of us as um, you know, evangelicals stand for today? Yeah, well, that's a good question. I didn't try to get out of it. Um, and I... I what I tried to do is um, disconnect in myself a desire to not sound like my um, ideological enemies, right? So I've noticed that, like, you may, I, I, I emphasize, I wouldn't say Jesus was poor, by the way. Um, I, I mean, that, you know, our, uh, Tecton is a middle-class profession, but he wasn't part of the elite. So liberation theology tells a story of a Jesus at the margin, um, and I tell a story of Jesus at the margin, but I think the story that I'm telling is accurate in that Jesus was at the political margin, but probably not at the economic margin. Um, so there's a thing that happens is almost from the very beginning, people, um, are, are they, they like little triggers get triggered, right? So I can tell you that uh, people got angry at me over the title. The maker versus the takers, what Jesus really said about social justice and economics. They got angry about the phrase social justice. Um, conservatives were mad. Friends said, I got really angry when I heard that you were thinking about making that the title of your book. Um, and again, if someone reads that and they say, oh, Jesus is the margin. Oh, that reminds me of, we got to stop thinking that way. Um, uh, if Jesus is a socialist, then I want to be a socialist, right? If the gospel is socialist, then sign me up, um, which means I got to kind of go along for the ride and not like stop an inquiry because, ooh, if I go there, you know, it might take me 
someplace I don't want to go. Because Jesus does take you places he doesn't want to go. He told Peter that. You're going to be taken someplace you don't want to go. And I can tell you, for me, there was a specific issue here, which was debt forgiveness. I really didn't want to go with debt forgiveness because the only people that I'd ever heard talk about debt forgiveness were socialists. And they had glommed the Jubilee law onto a socialist agenda. But again, it's like, who's who's the Lord, me or Jesus? You know, if, if he is ta- if he's preaching debt forgiveness, then we're going to go there. Right. So. Um, so. I'm, so if, if you if you let it flow, then um, and let Jesus lead where he leads, his powerlessness, his marginalness is a powerful polemic against state power. It's not a polemic for state power. And liberation theologians are neither. Because it's not theology, it's ideology masquerading as theology, and it doesn't liberate. When the Sandinistas took over, um, Nicaragua, which wasn't very free to begin with, became less free. Um, So the, the fact that Jesus is at the margin and is saying things that are negative about the state, and I know we're going to get into this more, and that ultimately the state kills him, um, is a powerful message that Jesus was, in fact, economic and political, and he had a social justice message in the sense that he had a message about justice, and it applied to society, but it certainly does not seem to have been a message that says, you can just give all the power to the state and they'll take care of the poor and everything will be great. Quite to the contrary. That was the system that killed him. The system that said, all the money's going to come to the Jerusalem temple and we'll take care of the poor. We're going to increase your taxes. We're going to make the tithe the tax. We're going to make it mandatory. We're going to control prices. Uh, but don't worry about the poor. We'll take care of the poor. You know, I know it says in the Old Testament that the poor tithe stays in the village where it's administered by the elders of the gates. That's not efficient anymore. The poor tithe, all the tithe is going to come into the central capital now. Um, but don't worry, we'll take care of the poor. That's the system that Jesus attacked. That's the system that murdered him. So anybody who's going to tell me, well, yeah, but in the 21st century, that's the system we ought to have. I'd say, well, you're welcome to whatever opinion you have, but do not try to hang that around Jesus. You, know, you might want to hang it around um, uh, uh, around Judas Iscariot, because that seemed to be his view. Right. Centralize the poor tithe, then take from it. But it does not seem to be the view that Jesus was teaching. Well, I want to get into some application uh, before we're done here, because I, I love that, given my field of work. But but right now, I, I kind of want to touch on this this point you're making right now. One of the ways that you that you help us look at the Bible and see that when Jesus, for instance, is talking, uh, saying poor, poor, talking poorly or harshly to the rich, and and see that that's not applying just to the rich in general, but really focusing more on the ruling elite, the the people who are getting rich as rulers, yes. is by by helping us see the Bible in a geographic perspective. There, there's yeah. Jesus and his what he says in Galilee, and there's Jesus and what he says in or as he approaches Jerusalem. Could you could you work through that with us and help us understand how that can help us understand G- what Jesus says about the rich? Yeah, he never denounces the rich um, who are rich in a marketplace environment and in a region that's largely an entrepreneurial region. Jesus grew up mainly in Galilee. 
there were rich people in Galilee. There are plenty of rich people in Galilee. There were rich people who were Jesus's neighbors in Sepphoris. We've got, we've got mansions and luxury goods within two hours walk of Nazareth. And there's not a single denunciation of the wealthy in Galilee. Uh, all of the denunciations of the wealthy are when he moves south towards the capital region. Uh, and when he is addressing, when, when the denunciations are made in general, woe unto you who are rich, that's the Sermon on the Plain. The evidence is that that's more south in the capital region. Whereas when he, when he, when he does the Sermon on the Mount, which looks like it's more northern, um, then he doesn't say woe unto you who are rich. He says, ye are the salt of the earth at the same point. Uh, so these are different sermons for different places. And it holds whether you're talking about Jericho or Bethany or Jerusalem, when Jesus is in proximity, uh, in geographical proximity and in social proximity to political power, which is, and where, where men are using political power to extract wealth rather than produce wealth, that's when he is harsh on riches. That's why the book is the maker versus the takers. Jesus is a maker, you know, first of all, because he's an actual builder, you know, uh, in his human nature, but his father, it was a maker, made the world. He made the world, really. Second person of the Trinity participated. So Jesus, Jesus is a maker, and um, the second person of the Trinity is a maker, a creator. And Jesus, in his human nature, sides with the creators of wealth against the extractors of wealth. Starting with the rich young what? The rich young ruler. Right. And any account that just it just bashes us over the head with it's harder for a rich man to go to heaven, which is a misquote, than it is um, uh, for a, a camel to go through an eye of a needle. Anyone who who cites that, even if they quote it accurately, it's enter the kingdom of heaven. It's not enter heaven, which is a different thing. But anyone who cites that without you reminding us, he's talking to a ruler. He's just finished a confrontation with a ruler, and he is literally staring at the ruler as he is saying that. For someone to turn around and use that as an argument to give more power to rulers is absolutely beyond me. I mean, this guy was a, basically a senator in our modern terms, and these people want to give senators even more riches and power in the name of this. They have sorely failed to read the details of the text. Yeah. Uh, yeah. The, um, the, the fact that that you point out in your book is, is that there are two very different economies going on in, in the, in this part of uh, Israel or in Israel at this point in time. Uh, again, it's a, it's a geographic difference uh, in, between Galilee and Jerusalem and Judea and that kind of area. And in, in your book, you, you go into and you, you pull out um, archeological details and historical details to help differentiate between that and, and help that to build the case, what you're talking about here. Could you kind of talk about the two different economies and how they were operating, the differences between them? Yeah. Um, Jude, you know, Judea was largely Jerusalem and Jerusalem was a company town and the company was the, was the temple, which was a government owned and controlled entity, right? Herod appointed the, um, the high priests. So this is, you know, in our day we have a, we have an airport authority. Um, you know, we have water and sewer authorities. These are, you know, they're, they're appointed by the state. Um, well, I'm, uh, the way I like the, the temple was supposed to be more like an airport authority. It came, became more like a sewage authority. Um, it became very corrupt, became the way that people were ripped off, especially through the money changer function, which was a false weights and measures 
with a price set by government and a monopoly set by government. So in the South, you have a government-centered economy and a ruling class. Uh, in the North, you had a lower tax economy. Like, for example, they didn't have the tribute tax up in Galilee, but they did have the tribute tax in Judea. I think that's one of the reasons why there's a trick question to Jesus. Well, should we pay taxes to Caesar? We just, we just think of that outside of historical context. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? I think there was probably an expectation that Jesus would say no because he's a Galilean and they didn't have to pay taxes to Caesar. So I, there was probably a sense of, hey, look, these Galileans, they're a little bit tax revolty. They don't have this, the tax to Caesar. They wouldn't like it. Um, so we're going to be able to get this Jesus to take the Galilean point of view, you know, no, no tribute tax, uh, and then get him killed because Rome right. would kill someone, right? Um, so they didn't have, you know, they didn't have that tax. Um, they had a more entrepreneurial economy, more up and coming, a newer economy. Like for instance, you read about, you know, you never read about Nazareth in the old Testament because there wasn't a Nazareth in the old Testament. It was a startup city. So you had more of these startup cities, more newcomers, a little bit more frontier. Um, you had more entrepreneurship. I think, I think I remember reading one, um, archaeologist who said pretty much anytime you you dig up a city or even a town in Galilee, you find three or four shops. So it was a kind of a shopkeeper society. You have, you know, you have people like Joseph and son or foster son builders. You had small industrial, like for instance, up at the wedding of, wedding of Cana, what do we have? Stone water jars. Well, guess what? They had a stone water jar industry there. Uh, Capernaum and Bethsaida, they had a fishing industry, not gigantic, but, you know, sort of small business, but still big enough to export. But as you go south, you get these gigantic agribusinesses, 100,000 acre farms that, you know, Caesar gives as a favor to someone. Hey, you killed my enemies. That's good of you. Here, take, take 200,000 acres. Well, I don't know how to run a farm. You don't have to run a farm. You got slaves to run the farm. You can just sit in Rome and collect the dividend checks. So you have, you have, real, you have different kind of economies. You have an up and coming, more entrepreneurial, lower tax economy up north. And you have a kind of state-centered, croniest system to the south. And then you overlay the details of the gospel accounts with that map, right? You like follow what Jesus is doing and pay attention. Where was he? Um, what you see is the pattern is a 100% universal pattern. No denunciations of wealth in the more entrepreneurial districts. And all of the denunciations of wealth occur down in the Judean state-centered top-down rather than decentralized region. Yeah. Um, after you've, you've done this, you, you, you also work a lot on looking at the economic perspective of particularly Mary and then his, her son, Jesus, on this. And you, and you go into the Magnificat and, and other things and, and talk about that. And how... How do you explain, and you, you do this in your book, but how, how do you explain the fact that, you know, reading all this into scripture, I'm sorry, you're not reading it into scripture, but how do you read out of scripture this really in-depth economic perspective that, that most people just don't see, right? They, they, they don't see it. And matter of fact, they, a lot of people I would would guess we're saying you're reading it into scripture that, you know, Jesus has this really in-depth economic views and Mary has these very in-depth economic views. How do you pull those from scripture? I think you do it by stopping the process of, of, um, blinding yourself to it. Um, I, I, I don't think, 
that these things have to be pulled from the Bible. I think we just have to stop telling the Bible that they're not there. So the, the moment that we start talking about Mary, what happens is for almost everybody, everybody's brain sort of shifts over. And we're kind of already starting to think about something. And it's almost nothing about what she actually says. It's about a thousand year old fight um, about, you know, what Mary is and who she is and, you know, whether she's sinless or not sinless. All those old fights are out there, right? And so, you know, basically, I, I feel like people read the accounts of Mary, including the Magnificat. And they're almost like skimming over everything that's not useful for the fight um, and ignoring the fact that she is explicitly talking about economics. There's no reading in at all. You know, the rich, he shall send away empty. The poor and play with bony, she, he will fill with good. I mean, she, there's no doubt about it. She's saying economic things. Um, we just don't know what to do with her saying economic things. And we're like, oh, none of that's useful for the fight I want to have. I want to have a fight that says Mary is sinless and, you know, and that these Protestants are wrong. Or I want to have a fight. Ah, she barely knows what she's talking about. And let's she, she gets too much attention as opposed to just letting the scripture tell us, you know, what she thought. Um, and again, same pattern. She's up in Nazareth and, you know, the angel comes to her, the angel Gabriel, and he tells her that she doesn't say anything about money or economics. But when does she, when she travels south, she goes to the hill country of the Judeans. She goes to Elizabeth, her relative, who is a member of the leadership class, because we know that we know that she is because her husband um, was someone who offered incense in the temple. So he's high up, right? right? So that's the upper, you know, it's an extended family and that's the upper class. But what does Elizabeth do? Hey, Mary, uh, you know, come here and do housework for me. Um, you know, because Mary was the economic and social junior. Instead, she said that the mother of my Lord should come to me. So Elizabeth is recognizing that if God is deciding to become incarnate in a Galilean, that there is some kind of social upheaval going on here. Um, Elizabeth goes along with it. She submits to it. Okay. God's decided I get a prophet. Mary gets the Lord. All right. Um, so I'm going to bow my head, you know, to her Lord. And, and my, my unborn son is going to, you're going to do a little twitch of joy. And then he's going to say things like he was before me, uh, but he comes after me, but he's better than I am. See, we, we leave all the economics out, but his is a priestly family. This is a high end family. This is a high class family. And they keep putting themselves under the family of Jesus because of Jesus. Um, and I like to say that I, I really think there's two people who understood what was going on better than anybody else. They are Mary and Herod, right? Apart from Jesus himself, um, I mean, because he's omniscient, even in the womb. But the people that we see who are talking, the two people who understood what this was about were Mary and Herod. They both understood that God was going to do something that would be socially revolutionary, um, not violent revolution, not Marxist revolution, but upend the power hierarchy. The difference was Mary wanted it and Herod didn't. So right. Mary bears Jesus. Herod tries to murder Jesus. But the fact that Herod was so attuned to power that in some ways he's smarter than many modern evangelicals 
and that he understood that this Messiah from not from his family, not from Jerusalem, meant that things were going to change around here. And we don't just mean go to heaven stuff. We mean everything's going to change. Power is going to change. Economics is going to change. Um, Herod saw that, knew it was a threat. So he killed him. Caiaphas saw it too eventually. And for economic reasons, murdered Jesus. So are we just reading then the, the Bible now for just economic reasons and we, we just can ignore the spiritual? No, 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 of course not. But I just, I just don't feel like people need to be super encouraged to read the spiritual and theological stuff and, and discouraged from reading the economic stuff because they've, all of the reading that I've seen is almost always in those kind of directions. Let's say right. there's different directions. Right. So there's a whole world of like seeker friendly mega church, uh, you know, Joel Osteen kind of stuff. And it reads spiritually in terms of like spiritual uplift, you know, a positive message, be your best self, you know, kind of feel good. Right. Right. Now, there's another group that they're reading it carefully, but everything is, you know, can I settle a theological dispute here about Mary or about. I don't know, predestination or what, right? So they read that stuff um, and they're looking for the for the systematic theology message. There's a There's been a lot of that. I wouldn't say there's been a shortage of people who are reading the New Testament looking for theological ammo or looking for spiritual uplift. I would say there has been a serious shortage of people who are looking for a full kingdom message, which would include an economic and political message. But I don't know, maybe if my book sells too many, um, you know, 20, 30, 40 years from now, there'll be a whole bunch of people who say that the New Testament is only about economics. Um, (laughs) And it doesn't say anything about how to go to heaven or about the incarnation. At which point, if I'm still alive, I'll say, no, that's never what I meant. The Bible's about everything. I just wanted to make sure that everyone understood that part of the everything that it's about is economics. Yeah, I, I thought it was fascinating in, in the book where where you kind of address this and how people might even be critical of your reading of the economics out of this. And it's, it's it's almost like you can't read the economics without discounting the spiritual. But I think yeah. the way you address that is, is is you really point out the fact that that Jesus, you know we all know as evangelicals, Christians, that Jesus is both fully God and fully human. But we kind of forget that second part most of the time that, you know, we just think of it God, but we don't really realize and, and put ourselves in, in, in the appropriate way into his place and, and how the whole, we see the world. Well, Jesus would be doing that just like we would be, except doing it perfectly. And that's why you would have all these economic insights and perspectives. Yeah, I, I, that's right. The, the spiritual and the theological and the economic and the political and the moral, these are not in conflict with one another. God's not d- divided against himself. Um, and I, I just, early on when I started talking to some people about this idea, I got sort of a pushback. Like, I, um, like when I talked about how the economic collapse of 32 AD, 32 to 33 AD, is likely to have played a role in the crucifixion. A friend, a good guy, someone very economically aware even said, well, Jesus was killed because he's the lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. It's like, well, yeah, sure, absolutely. So are you saying that a spear didn't go into his side? 
Are you saying that the cross didn't asphyxiate him? Oh, well, yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, there's human means. That's right. Okay. There are human means. There's physics involved in the death of Jesus. There's physiology. His heart probably fails. That's what it looks like. Okay. So that stuff's there. Guess what? There's economics too. Um, And the mystery of why Pontius Pilate, who hated Jews, gave in, who loved to murder crowds of Judeans, um, gave in to a mob, gave in to pressure from the Judean elite that he hated for the first time in his career. Um, Why? Because there had been a financial collapse linked to the banking families and Pontius Pilate was essentially linked to those great banking families. You know, I mean, there's some there's some senators that are maybe like associated with Goldman Sachs or, you know what I mean? There's, some senators right. represent the farming interest and some represent. All right. So his political sponsors, Sejanus and the equestrians were big into finance and there was had been a financial collapse. Uh, Pontius Pilate's um, political sponsor had just been executed for treason. That helped set off a banking collapse, very much like what we had in 2008. And Pontius Pilate had no friends and had no allies. And then the elite or the mob under the influence of the elite threatens when they say, if you let this man go, you are no amicus accessori, you are no friend of Caesar. It's perfectly clear what they're doing. They're saying, we're going to send a letter to Tiberius and we're going to tell him you're a traitor. And remember, you're, you're the protege of Sejanus, who was just executed on those same charges. Um, and you're, uh, you're on thin ice pilot. Um, and I would say he was, this, this financial collapse was clearly part of that environment that made him feel vulnerable. Now, does that conflict with God's purpose? No, it is the means by which God's purpose happens in the world. Those things are not in conflict with one another. Yeah. Yeah. Off the subject a little bit, you mentioned in your book, uh, a novel, I can't remember who wrote it, but it was novel Pontius Pilate. Yeah, and, and uh, that kind of influenced your views here. And I went and read it. It was fascinating. To, to Paul Meyer's book, it's really good, yeah, Paul, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, it's really good. And and he just walks through a lot of these things where you just see this 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 concept that these people are human, right? I mean, we, we don't really always get that aspect in the Bible because the the Bible is not written like a lot of modern day novels with the desire to you know to raise your emotions and to draw you in in that perspective. Um, it, it, it just presents things in, in God as God would see us. And, and we can be drawn into that, but in, in some ways that are a little bit different. And we, so we don't feel the Bible like we do these other things, but these people are just as human as we are. Yeah. And I think know? one of the big differences, one of the things that's a challenge is like one thing you've mentioned, modern novels have a lot of interior life. Right. You know, so if you read like a Tom Wolf novel, I, I'm a fan of Tom Wolf novels. There's a whole lot of people tell he's telling you what someone's thinking, right? Right. Well, ancient literature didn't work that way. Ancient literature said what people, for the most part, what they said and what they did. So you have to read it carefully. You know, you didn't have ancient novels that were this thick because they were expensive, right? So right. they have to be read more carefully. The other thing is, if I read a um say I'm reading a Tom Wolfe novel, Bonfire of the Fanities, and -and so-and-so is working on Wall Street and he's a master of the universe and he's really rich. I already know he works in finance, right? I I get all those associations because it's the world, you know, because I'm a modern person, right? So when we see see someone and they're in a Prius and they're in Silicon Valley and they're rich, but they're young, 
we know that person works in technology probably, right? We, we've got, we get all that, you know, uh, flag pin, whatever, but we'd, but let's, let's say someone was reading one of our novels 2000 years from now, they wouldn't probably wouldn't recognize the statue of Liberty. You know, they probably wouldn't recognize wall street. Okay. So we're reading a 2000 year old novel. It's true novel, but it's still a novel. It's written well, you know, it's good literature. That's true. Uh, but so we don't know the Bethside, you know, what's the difference between Bethsaida and Bethany in terms of the economy? We don't automatically know that, but a reader of Luke or Matthew would have automatically have known Capernaum, Bethsaida, they're fishing. One is on one side of a border. The other is on another side of the border. So if you move from one to the other, you're decreasing your taxes. So the, the apostles are at one point in the gospel shown as living in one, one of those cities. And in another point in the gospel, they're shown as living in another one of those cities. There's a move between Capernaum and Bethsaida, and then liberals come along and say, obviously conflicting tax. And I say, oh no, by moving, they're avoiding a consumer tax. They're decreasing their tax bill. Um, But if you don't know the map and you don't know what's going on with the region of Philip and the region of Herod and the tax differential that comes from moving, that won't make any sense to you. And then you go down to Bethany. Well, what's Bethany? Well, Eusebius says Bethany should be translated as poor town. So Bethany is a poor town. So it's a poor town that's like at, at the almost at the the gate of Jerusalem. So Jerusalem's a very wealthy town. Beggars there, yes, but wealthy places have beggars. Washington D.C. is wealthy, but there are beggars, right? Um, so right. Bethany is the poor town that's there, you know, near Jerusalem. Oh, by the way, who's from Bethany? Lazarus. Lazarus is the poor man from Bethany who is laid at the gate of the rich man who feasts by lamp daily. The, the rich man in that parable is the high priest. I We won't have time to go into it, but the details are overwhelming right. when you pay attention to them. It's the high priest, it's not generic rich man. So we don't know that stuff. And it's our, it's, I understand that we don't, not everyone can take the time to do it. It took me a lot of time. Um, I just got obsessed with it. Um, and it's all there. I mean, I'm not, I'm not giving people things that are not well-established, right? We, we, know, we know all this stuff. We just don't bring it together. Like Roman historians know about the terrible economic collapse of 32, 33 AD, but they're not New Testament scholars. So they don't say, hmm, what else important happened in 33 AD and then bring it over? New Testament scholars certainly know the traditional date for the crucifixion is 33 AD, but unless they happen to, you know, also be double majors in Roman economic history, they don't see that financial collapse. And so these things that that are happening at the same time don't get brought together because they're different subjects for different right. majors in school. Yeah. Well, this is a good time, you know, to, to maybe move over to application, which is, uh, and I've used up, we've used up most of our time not getting there, which is, I guess, in some ways good because, you know, like I said, I love application, but one of the problems with application is you learn all this stuff. And even if you're reading the Bible with the intent of getting out of the Bible, what's in there and not reading into it, when you move over an application, you, you hit that temptation all over again, right? You, you want to take this and apply it to the, to, to the world as the way we see it. And so I'm going to let you do most of the application here. But one, one thing that, that, caught my um, attention to what you said, the people moving around in the, in the old New Testament time, and they're moving from one side of the border to the other, and they'd understand all the differences, lower taxes. Well, that's just like 
moving around in the United States today, going from Texas to, to or California to Texas or yeah. New York to Florida or, or those kinds of things. And so when, when we take. So it's not evil. It's, it's Tax not, arbitrage does not appear to be evil. Jesus doesn't say, hold on, Peter, move back. Right. You're, you're eroding the tax base of Philip's territory. Right. So, you know, how much that applies to, say, moving from California to Texas, what I'd say it's it's not in it does not appear to be inherently evil since the disciples, while their disciples do it, um, it's, you're allowed to be, have practical wisdom. And you might say, well, who would say that I've had people who've told me that when people move from, say, a, a high tax city out to the suburbs, that they're doing something wrong. They're eroding the tax base, et cetera. Um, I don't I don't think that's true. Um, and I think the example of, um, I think the example of the, uh, apostles is a, is, I'm not saying it's a slam dunk, but I'm saying right. if someone thinks that it is immoral to make a move in order to legally avoid taxes, it's different than tax revolt. Jesus is against a tax revolt. Um, and they don't listen to him and a tax revolt's what ends up destroying Jerusalem. So it was important, um, that if, if legally moving to, um, uh, diminish taxes, then you have to explain to me why Jesus is like, all along with it and working out a Capernaum with Peter and not saying anything negative about this, uh, this apparently terrible erosion of the tax base. Well, that, and that, that helps me lead into the, the this last subject is the idea of, of corporate welfare, right? So, I mean, you take the ruling elites of Jerusalem of the day and the concentration of political and economic power with, with within them, you know, the, you know, a lot of people get confused and don't see the uh, the connection between the you know the the civil rulers and and the religious rulers. They kind of think that all these chief priests and everything are just church, but they're really state too because they're all they most are. of them are part of the ruling you know the ruling council of Jerusalem and they they have political power as well. But you, you described in the book a, a lot of these things, which today would seem to me fit under the title of uh, corporate welfare. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you also talk about in the book about how the, these elites failed to heed Jesus' warning about the ways in which the capital city and its ruling, well, here's a quote, elites, elites failed to heed Jesus' warning about the ways in which the capital city and its ruling political religious elite were courting disaster, right? So obviously they were courting disaster because they were denying the son of God and who he is. But I think part of your point is they're also courting disaster because of the way they're treating the poor and, right. and the way they're robbing and stealing from the poor. Can you take that and apply that today when, when we look at these massive corporate welfare schemes with, with government partnering with business and taking money from the poor and giving it to them and you know, the subsidies and tax abatements and favorable religious uh, regulatory, um, Favoritism? Yeah, um, I, I would start. Uh, I, I agree with all the point about tax subsidies and, re and regulatory subsidies. Let me also mention monetary subsidies, because I think one of Jesus's big problems with the ruling class was unjust weights and measures. Um, that, uh, you know, why is he overturning the tables of the money changers um, only? I mean, how many falafel stands did Jesus walk past in Jerusalem? you know, before he got to the temple, but he, he's not turning over in everybody else's carts. 
you know, I mean, I'm being a little funnier, but there are plenty of street vendors in Jerusalem, right? And they're dealing with money. Jesus doesn't turn over any of their carts, but he gets to a place essentially that has a relationship with the central bank. Um, and it, you have an unjust weights and measures in the, in the value. There's a fluctuation in the, va- in the value of the shekel. There's a lot of detail we probably don't need to get into um, where I kind of, you know, prove that. Um, so just, just take it as given. If, you, if you're masochistic about it, write to me and I'll send you articles that go through the drachma and the didrachma and the definition of shekel <laughs> in the book of Exodus, et cetera. If you really want that pain or maybe you have trouble sleeping. Um, so in our, in our modern times, what I would say is the biggest subsidy to large corporations overwhelmingly is zero interest rate policies. Right. So the central bank pumps money into capital markets and that makes borrowing incredibly inexpensive for large corporations. And it gives them very, very high valuations. So the large tech companies, for example, are helped immensely by the central bank's manipulation of the value of the dollar. So good, right? Well, but who who did it hurt? It hurts anybody who depends on a savings account, which tends to be people who are older, right? So your savings, my mom call me and say, Jerry, what can I do? My savings account is just about zero. And I'm, I say, there's, there's nothing you can do. I mean, there's just no, there's, that's the government has, the government wants that, wants it that way. Why do they want it that way? Uh, mom, they want it that way because they want you to spend, not save, right? They're manipulating you into spending, not saving. Uh, so that becomes, so it hurts savers um, and it hurts risk averse savers who tend to be older. So it hurts retirees. Um, it also hurts people through price inflation. Um, t- today, we just got new price inflation. I know today might not be the day we're running it, but we, we've had a whole bunch of data lately that shows rapidly increasing inflation. Who do we think that hurts more, the, the, the rich or the poor? It hurts right. the poor because the poor spend the highest proportion of their money on the essentials of life, right? So if you're a poor person and every dollar turns around and goes into gas, rent, food, right? Clothing and gas, rent, food, and clothing are going up, then you are hurt disproportionately by inflation. You, you can't buy an inflation hedge right? But rich people can buy inflation hedges. They can buy buy tax hedges, right? So the rich are helped and the poor are hurt. And I'd say one person in a thousand optimistically sees what's going on. And then people point at that and say, look how terrible capitalism is. As if this is capitalism when a central bank, you know, quintuples the money supply in five years and gives us the lowest interest rates in a millennium. Uh, by government fiat, and that helps the rich. And then we think that's the market. No, that's that's not the market. So no. that's one of the that's one of the, definitely one of the places where we're hurt. And then there's all the other stuff you mentioned, the various carve outs. You know, taxes might be this high statutorily, but there's a bunch of carve outs, so they're really this high. So the so those who are well connected get pay lower taxes than those who are not well connected. And the other thing would be large companies have gigantic compliance departments; they can deal with the regulations. Small companies have trouble dealing with regulations, and so a lot of regulations are an advantage to the big companies because they're a barrier to entry for their competitors. You know, the thing about all those lefty kids with Occupy Wall Street—they were right to be angry. They yeah. weren't right about, you know, what the cause of it was. Right. 
And we, me as a conservative, as a supply sider, maybe we're a little too quick to say, yeah, everything's great. Stop griping. You know, they, you know, I think we should, we should be outraged too. Jesus was. So I think we should be outraged. Just let's understand what it is that is causing the problem and what we're supposed to be outraged about. It's a ruling class that uses its political power to extract wealth from productive people. It's not money at all. It's not anybody who has money is bad. Anybody, it's, it's how you got it that matters. Exactly. Well, I could keep on going for uh, hours on this thing, but I know uh, you've got to go and I, I need to get going and, and we need to close down the podcast. But I really want to thank you for being on today, Jerry. A fascinating topic, fascinating book for, for everybody out there. Uh, again, the book is The Makers Versus the Takers, what Jesus really said. Step in it, maker. I'm sorry. You're See, exactly because, right. Here's the thing. There actually is a book called The Makers Versus the Takers. Right. And I'm trying to pun off of that. Right. That I'm saying the maker himself is siding with the with the makers. So yeah. I don't mean that I don't I don't I don't want to interrupt, but but I, no, I, I don't want someone to go and search for the wrong thing. <laughs> no, you're you're absolutely right. The maker versus the takers. Thank you. What Jesus really said about social justice and economics. And it's by Jerry Lee Boyer. And Jerry, thanks a lot for being on today. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you for listening to the Liberty Cafe with Bill Peacock. This show is produced by Texas Scorecard. You can learn more about this show and find other shows at texasscorecard.com. Be sure you subscribe and rate this show on whatever platform you listen on. See you next time.